Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. This year has gone by incredibly quickly, but it's always nice to pause and take stock. What's something you're proud of in 2024 so far? What's something you still want to accomplish this year? I know I'm guilty of falling into a routine and not always thinking about the bigger picture, but as the great Ferris Bueller once said, life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop and look around once in a while, you can miss it. So it's crucial to take a moment to celebrate your wins and make adjustments for the rest of the year. Therapy can help you contextualize your progress and set achievable goals for the next six months. As you surely know by now, it's not only for people who have experienced major trauma. Therapy is helpful in all kinds of ways, including learning positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. If you've been considering trying therapy, check out BetterHelp. It's fully online and was specifically designed to be flexible and customizable to your schedule. To get started, just fill out a brief questionnaire that matches you up with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Take a moment. Visit BetterHelp.com FilmDaily today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash film daily. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Wednesday, February 23rd, 2022. On today's episode of the show, we are going to gather around the virtual water cooler and talk about what we've been up to. My name is Ben Pearson. I'm an editor at SlashFilm.com, and I'm joined on today's episode by Slash Film editor Jacob Hall. Uh, hey, Ben. Uh, I, I normally say hello, hello, but I, I, I didn't there for some reason. It's been like a month since I've been <laughs> it, on the show. <laughs> it has been a long time. I'm so glad that they could carve out some time to to uh, join me here. I know our listeners probably miss you a lot. Um, so let's dive into it, Jacob. What have you been doing recently? Do, do people actually miss me, Ben? I, I'm I, sure I, they would. I mean, if I was a regular, well, I guess I am a regular listener to the show. I listen to the episodes that I don't host. So uh, yeah, you know, your voice is always no, welcome here. I'm, no, I'm sure just, people I, feel the same way. I, I just feel this, this is not like a, I'm going to put myself down or say put myself down thing. I just genuinely have a gut feeling that when people fire up this podcast and don't hear Chris or HT or Brad, they go, ugh. <laughs> I just have that feeling deep in my soul. Well, I really hope that's not the case because those people have been very, very busy in the recent in recent months and haven't really been on the show that much. So people have been doing a lot of groaning if that is actually the case. So if you are one of those listeners, I apologize to you, but uh, you're, you're stuck with me and Jacob today. So <laughs> let's get into it. Um, well, yeah, what have you been up to, Jacob? Yeah, I'm, I'm probably moving um, out of Austin. 
I know I lived there for over a decade, and I'm not moving that far. My wife and I have uh, signed papers on a new house to be built within eight to ten months in Georgetown, Texas, which is about uh, 15 minutes north of Austin. It's a um, small but rapidly growing city, one of those very traditional Texas uh, towns that like has beautiful architecture has been restored, but also has a lot of new life in it. Like a lot, a lot of these old storefronts in the, in the old town square area are now home to like coffee shops and, you know, bookstores. And it just feels like a, after years of living in the city, the idea of moving to a place that has a small town vibe, even though it technically is a city, it feels very relaxing. And like, I, I feel like if you told me five years ago, or, you know, I, I would have like, wanted to get out of an urban environment or I said, no, I'm, I'm, I'm a, I'm a city folk forever. But now that I am, <laughs> now that I'm looking at this, I'm like, man, I, I'm looking forward to living a quieter life. <laughs> well, the, the great saying. news about it, Jacob, is that it sounds like you're still super close. So it's not like you're, um, you know, giving up the lifestyle of being able to, uh, you know, go to the Alamo draft house all the time or like cover South by Southwest or like do any of the cool stuff that comes through Austin. You're still close enough to sort of have the best of both worlds. Yeah, for sure. But I just, there's so many parks, Ben, there's so many parks and rivers and <laughs> nature. Of, what is it? nature? And it's, it's very clean and I don't see graffiti in places. And, uh, it's like, it's the kind of place, Ben, where once you go to the, 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 the like, like the downtown like local bookstore twice they already start to recognize you so I, it's <laughs> i'm looking forward to uh to that uh, uh it's it's the kind of place ben where there is a a literal master hat maker with a year-long waiting list and customers all over the country who, who set up shop there and i have i made it i, I saw him i have another point with him i have a custom hat made that'll be delivered in a year it's, it's that kind of place <laughs> the place where where you can go have that service done wow is it uh has it been marinating in like a whiskey barrel for for eight months or something like I, I, for the amount of money i'd be paying for it it better have been um <laughs> but you know it's one of those cases where it's like you know, as, as as someone who always wears hats, is wear hats my entire life, or always my entire adult life. The idea of, of getting a hat that is like not a piece of crap is very exciting. Yeah, that's pretty cool. I've never thought about getting a custom hat before, but um, is it like a cowboy hat? I mean, are you, oh, yeah, are you going full on Texan I'm, there? I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm gonna have a freaking cowboy hat, man. Uh, <laughs> okay. I, I think I've typically worn a, a flat cap, like literally since since college. I've worn a flat cap, and. It's because I have a very large head, a very oddly shaped head, and um, but as somebody who is, you know, who who is from Texas and likes living in Texas and wears cowboy boots and would, and if I won the lottery, I'd go buy a ranch. I'm so I'm despite my other, what other what are tastes and, and identifiers are uh, signify with me. I like that stuff, so I'm looking forward to like <laughs> to being the guy who wears a who wears a very expensive cowboy hat and says, "I don't care what you think about this. I want to wear this hat." <laughs> okay, last question about the hat: Does it have your initials like uh, stamped into it, like a, a piece of cattle or something? Ooh, I don't know. I can ask him about that. Uh, <laughs> maybe maybe on the interior for sure. The amount of money I'm paying for, I don't want to get stolen, Ben. Yeah, um, <laughs> but, but but yeah, like I'm, I'm I'm having my second. There's a preliminary meeting last week. I'm having a meeting going in where I'm going to like pick materials and colors and and, say, uh, and say and say like they told me that uh, I can pay I can pay a monthly fee uh, instead of uh, all down because I'm local. So which is which is nice because uh, <laughs> I, I couldn't afford to do this. <laughs> if it was all down at once yeah man that sounds pretty cool man i'm, I'm excited to see what the final product lo- looks like there's so much buildup a year-long wait list it must be a big yeah, deal so i should have monthly check-ins on the hat on the podcast 
Uh, well, speaking of podcasts, your own personal podcast just hit a major milestone recently, right? Yeah, I, I don't want to plug outside stuff too much, but as some listeners may know, uh, Slash from editor Hutchin Bowie and I uh, host our own podcast called Trekking Time and Space, where we watch Doctor Who and Star Trek together. And her being a Doctor Who fan, me being a Star Trek fan, and we sort of swap notes and compare stories and talk about things at great length. And uh, we started this as a pandemic project, and we just hit episode 78 uh, on, on our Patreon feed. That episode 78 goes live for regular listeners uh, next week. But uh, for those of you who are Star Trek fans, you know that there are 78 episodes of Star Trek original series. So we have officially covered HT and I all every single episode of Star Trek the original series. <laughs> um, all, all the Kirk, Spock, McCoy episodes are in the can. They're done, and we're, we're officially moving on to Star Trek Next Generation uh, Season 1, of which we've already started recording it, but those episodes will begin, you know, arriving in earnest very soon. So remind me of the timeline on this, Jacob, because uh, I know that the original cast of Star Trek, the original series, came back for a series of movies before it, it sort of transitioned into like the Patrick Stewart movies in the 90s. Um, what came first? Was it Next Generation, the show? Was it Star Trek, the motion picture? Like how? And then how does that uh, sort of correspond with the order that you guys are doing things on the podcast? Yeah, here's the timeline. Uh Star Trek original series begins uh, 1966, is canceled in 1969. Uh, ten years pass, and in 1979, they make Star Trek Motion Picture, the lavish, expensive, directed by Robert friggin' Wise. Robert Wise, two-time Oscar winner, directed Star Trek Motion Picture. Um, and that kicks off the uh, series of, of, of original series films. So six of them made between 1979 and 1991. And those movies are all very successful. And in the midst of all that, in 1987, they launched Star Trek The Next Generation. And when that ends in 1994, they had the first Star Trek Next Generation film, uh, which in those series, that, that series runs until 2002. So that's the uh, basic timeline. We are covering those movies, by the way. We are, we are covering the Star Trek original cast movies on our on our Patreon, for those of you who are listeners who are interested. But um, yeah, okay, so I, I was curious about that. I didn't know if you were just going to do all TV and then all movies at the end, but yeah, that's smart mixing the, the Patreon. Yeah, there, so. all, all the TV stuff is going to be on a regular feed, but um, we we, we, we early on each year like we gotta get people gotta get, we want people to come to this Patreon. Like we yeah. we want we, we like and those movies are a lot of work, so they, they cover them properly. So we're we decided that if you want to hear us talk about Star Trek Motion Picture, which is incredibly boring, or Star Trek Two: The Wrath of Khan, which is great, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you need to come pay a little bit of money, but um, yeah, that's that's where that is. I'm, I'm very, I, I kind of had a gut feeling when we first started this wasn't going to last. So the fact that we've gotten this far and that we're still going on is uh, it's, it's really neat. I'm I'm I'm, I'm happy. I'm, there are very few things I'm happy about these days in in, in my personal life, Ben, just because of the very nature of the human being that I am. But I, <laughs> I'm I'm happy that we have reached this milestone while talking about Star Trek and Doctor Who for. An average of you know seventy ninety minutes an episode, like wait hundreds of hours now. HT and I on yeah. that podcast, man, that's awesome. Uh, all right, so let's get into what we've been reading. So uh, I just wanted to do another uh, quick reference to um, basically the the book that I centered yesterday's entire episode around, which is called Blood, Sweat, and Chrome: The Wild and True Story of Mad Max Fury Road. I read that recently uh, in order to um, prepare for my chat with Kyle Buchanan, the author of the book. And um, man, what a great book. I, I mean, I mentioned it yesterday, but uh, I just want to put this on everybody's radar. It's officially out now. So um, go pick up this book. It's it's very, very good. I mean, Jacob, I'm going to admit to you that like, I don't love Mad Max Fury Road in the same way that seemingly everyone else in my entire life does. 
um, because I just remember the sinking feeling that I got in the theater when they decide halfway through that movie that they're going to turn around and go back the way they came. And I just remember being so um, disappointed in that narrative decision uh, that it kind of took a little bit of the wind out of my sails. I also have not revisited this movie since seeing it in theaters like i've seen little snips of it you know here on here and there and on tv or whatever um but i need to like sit down and really settle back in because i remember loving the um the thematic depth that the movie had and like you know that's one of the great things about this book it's this big oral history and it talks about all of the uh the really like deep uh symbolism and everything that is sort of like woven throughout the text of this film um and i remember really enjoying that part of it but just like on a uh, a propulsive narrative level. I was like, oh man, you're going all the way out in the desert and, and just turning around and coming back. And I realized it's like a, uh, you know, a really um, a dumbed down version of what happens in the movie, but uh, I couldn't, I couldn't help but shake that part. So I, I respect the movie more than I love it, but that's only after one viewing. So uh, I, I think you're one of those people who really like unabashedly loves this film. Um, so, uh, and I know that you're uh, excited about reading this book too, right? Yeah, my copy is sitting downstairs right now. I'm very, very excited to uh, crack it open. I, I just I had to finish another book first, which I finished last night. But yeah, I think Fury Road is increasingly one of my favorite movies of all time. It's one of the movies where I, I watched it and loved it at the time. And the more I sit on it, the more I realize that's an all-timer for me. It just uh, I revisit it pretty regularly, and I think it's incredible. And knowing that, that this book exists after literally years of you know the half-reported rumors of the false starts and the cast changes mm-hmm. and the conflicts. Knowing that this book exists is very exciting. My, my main question, my main worry about any oral history, how honest does it feel? Like, how, how does, it, does it genuinely get into, like, the real nitty-gritty of people saying, yep, this thing, this part of the production sucked, or does it feel whitewashed, which is a problem with a lot of the worst oral histories? Oh, no, it definitely, it, like, you get the sense that um, that people were were feeling desperation out there in the desert because it just kept on going and um, you especially get the sense that Charlie's Theron and Tom Hardy um, did not really understand what George Miller was doing because uh, basically they made the entire movie without a proper script. It was all based on um, storyboards. And so George Miller is one of these guys who like has the entire movie in his head. So he would uh, basically like, you know, um, have his team set up a, a camera uh, shot and call action and then call cut like three seconds later. And he would be like, no, I got it. Like, that's all we needed. I just needed you like slamming the pedal down in this shot or whatever. And like Charlize and, you know, people who actually spend a lot of time like getting into character and like wanting to, uh, you know, live in the moment for a little while in a scene. We're just so thrown off by this like sort of a uh, nitpicky is the wrong word, but like ticky tack approach of like, just, yeah, I'm just George Miller. I'm checking these, boxes off in my mind because I know it's all going to come together. It's just, um, you know, you get to really sense their frustration and like, it's very palpable in the book. So yeah. The, and then also like the clashes, the personal clashes between Charlie's and Tom Hardy, which is, you know, something that uh, has been sort of widely um, speculated about in, in the past five or six years or whatever. Uh, you actually get to drill down on the details of what exactly they they clashed over which i thought was really interesting too so yeah i'm, I'm um, really excited that's just enough to get me like i'm hoping to start reading it tonight so is uh, it's 30 degrees in austin and going to rain and possibly snow so i need i need i need uh, I, I, so this feels like a good book to read to yeah you need you need a trip to the desert jacob <laughs> a trip to valhalla um all right so what have you been reading though 
I also read an oral history, which is why I want to have those questions for you. This is a uh, Tinderbox, HBO's Ruthless Pursuit of New Frontiers by James Andrew Miller. Uh, James Andrew Miller has written a number of oral histories. He wrote a really amazing one about Saturday Night Live, you know, a number of years ago. He wrote one about ESPN, a, a few others as well. This is his latest one. It came out late last year. And this is a phone book size uh, uh, book, Ben. It is just under a thousand pages long. It covers the creation of HBO, which was created far earlier than I thought. I think it was like late 60s, uh, all the way up to all the way up to HBO Max. It like literally is up to uh, up to date. Uh, the last areas chapters about Euphoria and all the most recent shows. And it is um, it feels oftentimes very complete, especially the first two thirds of it, where um, if you are at all interested in HBO and how HBO probably has done more to um, rewrite how we create and consume media than uh, any other thing ever. I, I, I This book makes a strong argument that HBO has quietly impacted everything, everything we, we watch and how, and how we talk about and, and, uh, and make uh, TV and, and film uh, HBO has impacted it. And it's a really, really compelling uh, uh, deep dive into that. My one issue with it though, and this is a, a big one is that it, for a thousand page long book, it, it it definitely feels saggy. It feels like there are, there are points where it will spend a very long time on certain subjects where clearly he, he can get the right interview subjects, and then he will completely gloss over other things, like almost get the impression that people wouldn't didn't want to talk about it. Like for example, the cancellation of Deadwood is dealt is dealt by barely talked. Deadwood's barely talked about at all. The cancellation of Deadwood, a famous HBO story, there's nothing new there, and nobody even talks about it. Whereas they'll spend so much time on this one HBO boxing match <laughs> that happened in the eighties. <laughs> uh, so there are certain points I'm like, okay, let's get on with this. Let's get on with the program. But, um, um, like so for the first two thirds of this thousand page book, I was really on board still because it's so much information. And, and the problem is the people who are being really honest and giving the best stories are people who were fired from HBO or left HBO a long time ago. Once it reaches a modern age and the people who are being interviewed are people who are still HBO, still have to maintain a company line. Uh, it, it starts being, really uninteresting because it's people who are clearly like, I love HBO. HBO mm-hmm. does the right thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so when, when, when people get fired late, late in the book and, and they start talking again, you're like, Oh my God, they get fired. We get some good stories again. You, you really start to see that the, the very clear cutoff line ar- around, around the time of, there was a bunch of mass firings in the wake of uh, Sopranos' finale before Game of Thrones, you know, shoots HBO back up to the top. Uh, around that time is when the book starts becoming really, a bit of a slog, but if you're willing to skim through the right areas and are genuinely interested in HBO, uh, it's still absolutely worth a read. I just would, I just don't think anyone would blame you. If you want to realize you can probably skip like large chunks of it toward the end. Yeah. <laughs> oh man. Okay. So that's called Tinderbox. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Tinderbox. Okay. What else? I also read a, a book called the last gunfight by Jeff Quinn. Uh, ben, uh, are you a tombstone fan? Are you serious? Tombstone, the, uh, what was it, 1993 movie that was uh, kind of basically directed by Kurt Russell, even though uh, it's <laughs> technically uh, credited to somebody else? Yes, I love this movie. Okay. Um, are you familiar beyond Tombstone with like the story of the gunfight, the OK Corral, Wyatt Earp, uh, Doc Holliday? How familiar are you with those people in real life beyond that movie? Uh, not very. Okay, The Last Gunfight by Jeff Gwynn is... A book that's literally about the gunfight, the OK Corral, the events leading up to it, the aftermath, and the legacy of Wyatt Earp, Doc Holliday, and all the people featured in that story. And I love Tombstone. I love the classic Western tall tales of the of Wyatt Earp. I, I love those legends. Uh, but Jeff Quinn, uh, being a 
proper researcher. A, 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 I previously talked about his book, the book he, he wrote about uh, Jim Jones, the cult leader, a few years ago. He's a very serious writer who does his homework. Literally digs through all all the paperwork, all the court records, all the historical documents, all the diaries, and exposes the what really happened in Tombstone, what really happened at the, at the OK Corral, who Wyatt Earp really was, who Doc Holliday really was. And the result is one of the best books I've read in a long time. Our last gunfight reveals that, you know, this was not a good versus evil thing. This was not, you know, bad guys in one corner, good guys in the other, having a grand dramatic shootout. It was a bunch of shades of gray, personal politics, uh, petty, uh, really petty opinions on each other, personal grudges, uh, just all kinds of little dumb things leading to a very dumb shootout that had disastrous consequences for everybody who survived. Uh, It's really astonishing how much the... Government OK Corral destroys the Europe family. How like they they never recover from it, and how it how it ends up becoming such a legend and so famous. But at the same time, it is the the, the legend got printed, not the truth. And the truth is so messy and so weird and so full of uh, tiny details and personality issues. And uh, I, as somebody who who just loves when. <laughs> I love true stories. I, I, I love when like people unpack legends and figure out, figure out why this become the way it was. Why was mm-hmm. this story, you know, blown up in uh, out, of, out of proportion? And the gunfight at the OK Corral uh, is so much more interesting and 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 so much like so much more to, to, to sink your teeth into once you realize that um, the incredible legend is just that a legend. So, like I said, if you want to like go rewatch Tombstone and then read the last gunfight. Uh, it's a, a genuinely incredible depiction of how one thing, how like the story of this really kind of mediocre semi-lawman who nobody liked and nobody trusted end up being played as a heroic white knight Kurt Russell character in the 90s. It is. Wow. <laughs> but yeah, it's, uh, you, I think you'll get, a, I, I think as long as you don't want like one of your favorite movies, like, as long as the, the true story won't like deflate your favorite movie, Ben, or right, favorite right. Movies, then I, I would highly recommend it. Okay, yeah, that's called The Last Gunfight. I'm definitely adding that to my list. Uh, and then you've also been reading one other thing, right? Yeah, one other thing. I've actually read a lot of books recently. These are the three uh, most recent, though. Uh, this is A Dark Harvest by Norman Partridge. It's more of a novella. It's 160 pages long. It's a, a horror horror uh, story published in 2006. And my, uh, what if you took, uh, you took The Purge, set it in 1960s um, small town, Midwestern small town, and you put a walking scarecrow monster in the middle of the purge. Um, <laughs> that is my elevator pitch for Dark Harvest, which is a, a really good, surprisingly soulful horror story. Never really scary in in, in the sense that you you know I'm not like really getting chills, but it's very creepy. Um, uh, very interested in the in the idea of being trapped by your hometown and using horror to explore that. And uh, I did not know this until I finished it, but I literally looked up um, the Wikipedia page for, for trivia. Curious if there's any, any, any tendrils of trivia I could follow. And the film adaptation started, started filming last year, directed by David Slade of Hard Candy and 30 Days of Night fame. So, um, yeah, it, I did not know they're making a movie version, but they are, which means I imagine this book could you know, become more prominent in the next few months, if, especially if the movie hits its uh, proposed September you know, of this year release date. Mm. So, um, yeah, that's Dark Harvest. Um I think it's good, and if you like scarecrows and you like violence and you like small town stories about tragic characters trying to escape doomed fates, uh, it's worth reading. Okay, that sounds like a pretty uh, solid pitch. Um, I watched a couple movies, Jacob. I in in the what we've been watching section, uh, I saw a movie called Big Gold Brick, 
which is the uh, feature directorial debut of this writer-director producer named Brian Petzos, who had previously directed a couple of short films starring Oscar Isaac. Uh, and I actually spoke with Petzos um, yesterday, sometime earlier this week, who knows with time anymore, uh, and uh, published the interview with him about this movie uh, on SlashFilm.com this morning. Um, I embedded those short films, so you can go to that article. I'll link to it in the show notes, and then you can you can actually watch those shorts if you want. Um, this movie is uh, it's kind of wild. It's I'll read you the, um, the description here. Living somewhere in the universe between Charlie Kaufman and the Coen brothers, uh, Brian has de- uh, crafted this decidedly comical, at times absurd tale. It's all at once personal, emotional, romantic, thrilling, frightening, surprising, and hopefully above all else, mesmerizing. With its operatic sensibility, you'll join the ensemble cast, which includes an exceptional performance by Andy Garcia on a journey you won't soon forget. Um, so that's like the sort of like a publicist speak version of this. To actually try to summarize what this movie is about would take the entire rest of the runtime of this podcast. So I'm just not going to do it. But uh, I encourage you to watch the trailer, at least. It's definitely a movie that is um, it's going for it. It's taking a big swing. It has this, um, this sense of... Um, being a movie that is uh, that is driven like almost purely on uh, like auteur level um, artistic intent, almost to the detriment of the movie itself. Like there's there's a point where it, it sort of becomes like um, not to to say that it's like radically uh, anti commercial makes it seem like this sort of avant garde art film or something, and it is not. It is not that. It's definitely more accessible than that. But it is not a movie that really cares about um, adhering to expected formulas or any sort of convention uh, that you might expect. So it's uh, it's a weird, odd little movie. I honestly didn't love it as much as I respected the fact that it exists, especially in 2022 with the current movie landscape. I mean, post, uh, you know, right after the, the pandemic started, I feel like all of the um the uh, whatever studios, streamers, everybody have, have sort of like changed the way that they go about uh, go about their business in Hollywood. And movies like this have often fallen to the wayside or been greenlit specifically for streamers and have just sort of fallen into the gaping maw of uh, never ending streaming content. Uh, and this movie is actually getting a theatrical release and it's going to be available on digital platforms um, starting on Friday. So it's it's sort of an outlier in that regard. And it's like it's definitely a movie where you're going to come away from it if you watch this thing being like, well, this I mean, this is like a vision from one person. And it uh, it's it's sometimes just like um, kind of encouraging to see that that can still happen, even though this movie like I wasn't fully on its wavelength. Uh, there will definitely be a lot of our listeners who. Um, who click with it a lot more than me. So uh, I just wanted to sort of put it on everybody's radar because it's a small movie. It's being distributed by Samuel Goldwyn Films, which is not like a, a you know powerhouse distributor or anything. Um, so if you've never heard of it, uh, maybe check out the trailer. I'll, I've, I've uh, embedded that in the uh, interview article as well. So you can pretty much find anything you need to know about a uh, big gold brick in the, uh, the article in the show notes. So I want to put that on people's radars. Yeah, if you're one of those people who's always... Um commenting on our facebook page or tweeting at us saying oh you only cover superhero and star wars stuff go read this interview because we don't damn it (laughs) (laughs) yeah exactly or like (laughs) why doesn't hollywood do anything original or whatever like you know that the sort of tired um arguments that uh you know they have their their uh, valid points but just sort of feel like played out at this point it's not just that and yes uh, especially in in the past i don't know let's call it a few years slash film i think has been 
really good about um, expanding our horizons and and covering a lot more different stuff on the site. So this is squarely in that category. Yeah, I mean, if you want to see more coverage like this, go click on the interview. Like, I'm, I'll just be straight up honest like if you genuinely want us to cover like niche weird offbeat special movies go read this interview it's a really good interview and uh, encourage us to do it like give us the numbers to keep yeah. pursuing yeah. stuff like this i mean i just i'll tear the i'm tearing the the, the curtain down like i'm just being nakedly <laughs> honest about it like, go, go read this if you care about this stuff yeah definitely uh okay and then the only other movie that i watched jacob was uh last night my wife and i fired up rosemary's baby for the first time i'd never seen this movie um it's on hulu right now i think it's streaming maybe on amazon prime video as well but uh yeah 1968 roman polanski uh mia farrow john cassavetes i mean i'm sure uh i'm sure we talked about this movie in, in some capacity on the podcast before uh it's like you know uh, widely acclaimed as one of the most classic horror films of all time. Definitely one of the most, um, you know, one of the biggest movies of the 1960s. And uh, it was like a, a mega hit, a really big deal. And um, I, I was kind of shocked to see that Ruth Gordon won the Best Supporting Actress Oscar uh, because I thought that her performance was, uh, you know, teetering on ridiculous at times. She plays like the, the neighbor um, character who... Uh, if you've never seen Rosemary's Baby, you may want to fast forward a little bit, but she is involved in this sort of uh, cult scheme to uh, <laughs> impregnate this this um, woman played by Mia Farrow with the uh, spawn of Satan. So, yeah, it's a it's a whole thing. But, um, yeah, this movie is, uh, it, you know, I, Jacob, I kind of thought that it was like uh, relatively low key and like um, not scary until all of a sudden it was <laughs> like the yeah the, it's um, it, it's a definition of slow burn i mean we talk about slow burn horror movies a lot in the age of a24 uh but <laughs> rosemary's baby not to be reductive is an a24 movie 50 years early yeah no that's yeah it's exactly right i mean i mean there's like the there's a uh a scene there's a moment where the movie sort of um flips a switch from being you know this sort of quiet drama about these this like married couple trying to have kids and like just living in their apartment in New York city to, uh, Oh shit, there's something really seriously wrong here. And this is pretty fucked up. So, um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I, uh, I enjoyed the movie. I think I had, um, absorbed enough of the story points just through cultural osmosis that I wasn't super surprised at anything in it. Um, not that it's always a movie's job to surprise me, but uh, I thought it was it was executed really well. The only thing that I wish um, that I think would have made the movie a lot better is that if especially the John Cassavetes character, the, the husband, uh, was played by somebody else. It's like somebody with a little bit more um, charisma in that role. Like we were reading about it afterwards and Robert Redford was evidently up for that part. And you know, part of me thinks that because the the um, husband part in that movie, he's an aspiring actor or an actor, sort of a low level actor. So like part of me thinks that like Redford, even in 1968, may have been unbelievable as a an unsuccessful actor, you know, because he's so like uh, gorgeous to look at. And like just the idea, it may strain credulity a little bit that like Robert Redford could be playing a guy who hasn't made it big yet. Um, but uh, Cassavetes, I don't know, I just found him to be like, such a wet blanket in the movie um and he didn't even really um i don't know telegraph or like uh satisfyingly to me uh you know um depict the uh the sort of um internal turmoil that that character must have felt making the decisions that he makes in the movie um that his wife is like unaware of so uh i just i feel like even and mia farrow like you know this is 
arguably her most famous performance. And I thought she was like, she played it so low key that I would have loved to see somebody. Yeah. Maybe a bit more, um, I don't know, like engaging and, and charismatic and uh, just sort of like, there's a moment where she opens her eyes and just screams when she sees something late in the movie. And I'm like th- this energy, like this, where was this the whole movie? But uh, anyway, so my little, um, you know, backseat driving for a movie that came out in 19, 1968. There you go. Yeah. We can clearly got to go back and get the, get the negative unless you recut it, Ben. Clearly this is, this is the next step. <laughs> Yes, they could, they'll, they'll digitally de-age Robert Redford and reshoot all the scenes. And that's nice. no, I, I know what you're saying. I, I I do think that Rosemary's Baby is super low key, which is a double edge double edge blade because it means that the movie feels very real and sneaks up on you when it starts getting you know more fantastical. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I also don't think what you're saying is incorrect. I it, but to me, it's never been a factor in how I viewed the movie. So, but but yeah, I'm not going to say like you're wrong, but also it's never bugged me at all. Yeah. All right. So, what have you been watching? I'll talk about only one thing I've been watching recently because I think it's more interesting people give credit for, and that is uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Not the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the 1974 masterpiece, uh, but the new uh, Netflix movie, sold to Netflix, not made for Netflix, uh, uh, sequel that, like the Jamie Lee Curtis Halloween movie from years ago and its sequel, is a direct sequel to the original film, and mostly ignores the sequels, uh, and also has, has mostly the same title, except that they dropped the the. So calling it Texas Chainsaw Massacre just feels very weird to me. Man, like the, the, the feels look <laughs> nitpick the texas chainsaw massacre is a film title is so evocative because it generally feels like an, like an actual event oh yeah the texas chainsaw the texas chainsaw massacre that, that happened in 1994 like mm-hmm, four, four mm-hmm. kids died but this texas chainsaw massacre feels like it feels like an seo slug on, <laughs> on an imdb page as opposed to like feeling like you're feel, it lacks the power and grit removing that the does so much to the title in a way that bugs me. Do you? Do, am, I, am I being weird about this? No, I mean I never really thought about that, but I think you're right. I think I haven't seen this new version, but I just watched the Texas Chainsaw Massacre for the first time, like uh, I don't know, within the past year, and um, I was kind of blown away by the power that that movie has. And I think you're right. I think that the really like underlines the um, the impact of those events depicted in that specific film. So yeah, um, I, I never thought about that, but I think you're totally right. Anyway, people hate this movie. Uh, I'm not sure if, has Chris talked about this on, on, on the podcast yet? No, I don't think so. Uh, Chris reviewed it and he hated it. And I, I don't, I don't credit, I don't, you know, I don't, you're allowed to hate this movie because it's, I also don't think it's especially great. But um, I think it's interesting though. I guess uh, this full disclosure, the director of this movie who was hired a week in the filming after they fired the original directors uh, is a, uh, my brother-in-law wrote his first movie that got him this job. So even though I don't know him personally, there is that connection. I was going to say that right now, so nobody can kind of call me on. You know, it's a small, big, big world, small city, or you know, big city, small mm-hmm. world, however you want to call it. But um, he is a local Austin filmmaker working in Austin, in the Austin area, which is where Texas Massacre, the original Texas Chainsaw, was was filmed in back in the seventies. This one was filmed in Eastern Europe, which gives you an <laughs> idea of how things change. Uh, but I, I will. Can I go ahead and put a spoiler gong up here, Ben, and talk spoilers? Yeah, definitely. So, so yeah, yeah, we'll give people just like a few seconds in case you're doing laundry or whatever. Like, make the dive now for your phone or whatever you're listening on, and fast forward. Or and basically, you can just end the show because I think it's the last thing that we're going to talk about. So, um, yeah, if you haven't seen the movie and this is your final spoiler, spoiler warning, just wanted to give you ample time. Go ahead, Jacob. So the premise of the movie is that there's this small abandoned Texas town out in the middle of nowhere. Um, and it seems to be several hours from Austin, as they say. Austin is central Texas. And all these rich young people show up to essentially buy... The, one, one, one rich young person has bought 
most of the buildings in this abandoned town is planning to auction them off to revitalize them, have them turned into, you know, hip, modern, trendy places and revitalize the town and make it, you know, a, a new, a new like, liberal haven for like all these young people. And I saw, I've seen a lot of reviews, like instinctually refer to these people as West Coasters or Californians or people who are from out of state. But this is never actually said in the movie. In, in, in fact, it said specifically that the guy, this young, hip, trendy guy who's bought this town essentially is from Austin and his girlfriend's from Austin, his partner's from Austin. And they've clearly bust in a bunch of trendy Austinites. And as somebody who's lived in Austin for a long time, you know, it's very known for being, you know, a, a liberal hub, this, you know, very large blue spot in the middle of a red state. And, and you know, it's, it's, it's a city where, you know, you know, there, there are crypto billboards and tech companies, but all, like standing side by side with, you know, honky tonks and, you know, uh, and, and cowboys and plant and, and, and ranches. So it, it's, it's, it's just very huge collision of cultures. Like there's new Texas, which is young, diverse, modern, um, tech savvy. And there's old Texas, which are people, you know, uh, conservative, uh, wear people's skin on their faces, kill people with chainsaws, eat their flesh. You know? <laughs> uh, and I don't, I think this movie is entirely successful at what, at what it's trying to do here, but this is the first time I've seen a major movie directly uh, depict the ongoing culture war going on in Texas, which is like literally. I just said I'm moving to Georgetown, Texas, which is a, a place, that, a, a, a small city that was on the, like it was a desolate ghost town, you know, a couple decades ago, and now young trendy businesses bars coffee shops bookstores um ice cream parlors all moved into the downtown area and revitalized all these beautiful you know old buildings that are built you know uh, over a century ago and have turned this old school texas town uh into you know a thriving you know um more, more politically and racially diverse community and and, mm-hmm. and, and it's so this movie is about that and it's about what happens when these very naive um you know, liberal modern Texans move, like force themselves into this old Texas town that's inhabited by Leatherface, the uh, now much, much older killer from the original, you know, uh, Texas Massacre movie from the 70s. And when he pushes back. So it's a movie from an Austin based filmmaker that is very much about uh, like the old, old, quote unquote, old school Texas violently pushing back against people trying to, um, take up space and move beyond the Austin borders. It's not about, you know, oh, Texas is killing Californians. No, which is what I've seen so many people say, no, it is about Texans killing Texans uh, in, in an attempt to preserve an outdated, outmoded way of life, hmm. uh, which is, I don't, I don't think the movie pulls it off. I don't think the movie pulls it off. I think that the fact that they had a, a change of director week in the filming means that, you know, clearly this is a trouble production all the way around. And, to the film's credit, the, the kills are amazing. They're, they're, it's an incredibly violent film. They're, they're, the, the kills are staged impeccably. They're incredibly violent. They, they definitely have my jaw on the floor a few times. But uh, narratively, character-wise, kind of dead on arrival, which means I can't wholly recommend this. But it, I just couldn't... I can't shake the idea that this is the first movie, this Texas Chainsaw Massacre movie, uh, is actively about the Austin and surrounding area culture war that like I actively see happening every single day of my life. And it's the first movie I've seen do that. In fact, they're building a Tesla factory outside of Austin. It's bringing in lots and lots of jobs. It's controversial because Tesla's controversial. Elon Musk is a douchebag, but the, but you know, so it's just, there's, there's that ongoing thing of like, yeah, it was green cars, more jobs, uh, tech industry, but also 
you know, also like you know, the, the, the Larry David gif, you know, the eh, back and yeah. forth. Yeah. Um, and the, the final image of this movie, this is why I want to do a spoiler alert, is it recreates the end of the original movie, where in that scene, the, the, survivor, the lone female survivor is in the back of a truck as it speeds away a little face chaser. In this, the, the, only, the, the only survivor is in a self-driving Tesla as it takes it back to Austin and she can't get the car to stop to save her sister while Leatherface cuts her head off with a chainsaw. So wow. it, recre- it recreates all those scenes of this girl literally being ushered back by a self-driving car, an electric self-driving car, back to the liberal haven of Austin while she watches Leatherface do his famous iconic chainsaw dance after murdering her sister in front of her. And that's such a loaded image. And I don't think people outside of Austin or even Texas understand how loaded that image is for a chainsaw movie. So that... It's interesting. Yeah. It's it's a Man. super interesting movie. Yeah, it sounds like. It. I mean, yeah, like you know, because that that sort of um like the way you're talking about it, it seems like a movie that's very much about gentrification, but also like it seems either muddled or like uh complex to a degree that maybe we just don't I haven't seen the movie, but maybe that we just haven't fully grasped yet where like uh you know, it 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 um depicts these two forces, these two, you know, old and new Texas facing off. But then also if that one, if that final surviving girl uh, is in that car and then like uh, the tech thing, which is she's supposed to be like on the side of, or in that reading, right? Like if she can't master that or um, is, is sort of in, in a way being like uh, kept down by that. And like that results in the, <laughs> her inability to, to open the door or whatever um, directly results in, uh, the death of one of her loved ones. I feel like that alone sort of like um, complicates the message a little bit more. So is that part of what you're talking about where like it doesn't quite stick the landing of what yeah. it's trying to raise? There are very much parts of this movie that um, <laughs> like, for example, it's very modern. In fact, that one of the characters, the main character, the survivor has previously survived the school shooting uh, and, and uh, she's traumatized, but don't you know it in order to fight back, she has to pick up a gun because Texas, you know, mm-hmm. and it's like mm-hmm. and my, my whole thing is, you know, I'm I'm from Texas. I have very complex feelings about a lot of things, uh, but I, I but I do think you you can't build your character's identity on. She survived the school shooting. She's traumatized, and then you go, yeah, she could pick up that gun and save the day. It's it's such a mixed, muddy, weird message. And you could say it's about New Texas needing a slice of old Texas in order to survive, right? But the movie just is not clear or smart enough to run with that. And I don't mm. think that's necessarily – I genuinely think this movie is well-directed. It's genuinely well-staged on a scene-by-scene basis, a kill-by-kill basis. But that script and that story, too many cooks, and it's very clear to me. Yeah. Okay, so that's Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It sounds like uh, maybe a bit of a failure, but at least an interesting one. That's on yeah. Netflix right now if you want to check I, I, that out. I don't think it's nearly – I don't think it's, it's the train wreck people are saying it is. I think it's an interesting failure, and, I, and that's why I want to talk at length about it. So. Okay. Well, yeah. Thanks for for uh, bringing that up. Hopefully, people uh, who watched the movie and maybe wrote it off are are going to think about it a little bit deeper, deeper now. So, um, yeah, I will link to uh, that um, uh, big gold brick uh, interview. Like I said, so you can check that out in the show notes here. I encourage you, as always, to go to slashfilm.com, read all the stuff that we're writing over there. There's, I mean, a ton of great stuff there every single day. Slash Film Daily is published every weekday, bringing the most exciting news from the world of movies and TV, as well as deeper dives into the great features you can find on the site. You can subscribe to the show on Apple, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps, and send your feedback, questions, comments, concerns, and mailbag topics to us at peter at slashfilm.com. Make sure to leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention your email on the air. Don't forget also to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. Tell your friends, spread the word. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you tomorrow.